Remember the exhortation that began chapter four. I urge you therefore as a prisoner of Christ Jesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How do you walk in a manner worthy of your calling? How do you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, first consider our sermon last week. If you weren't here, here's what you need to know. Remember that you are one, that our God is one, and that the one God has given his people many gifts for one goal, to build up the church, that the saints may grow together in the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God into maturity. Paul grounds our faith in a right understanding of God. He situates our faith within the life of the church. And in our text this morning, he helps us think about what our lives should look like. He demonstrates how the gospel warms our hearts, enlightens our minds, and changes our actions. Our text today helps us see what it looks like very, very practically to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live in a way that is both consistent with and points to the good news of Jesus. There's one overarching command in our text today, if you're taking notes, it's just this, do not walk like the Gentiles walk. Wait a minute, didn't he just say that the whole mystery of the gospel is that Jew and Gentile are one? Of course. He has in mind here, not sort of Jew or, or Gentiles ethnically framed as non-Jewish people, but as Gentiles non-believingly framed, as people among whom you once lived, non-believing Gentiles. Here's his point, do not live like non-believers live. And we could even make it more pointed. Do not live like you used to live. We're reminded, if we seem to forget, that the Christian life changes the way we live. Here's Paul's argument that, that all the people that you come from, all the people around you, they're living a certain way. And while it might look good in some ways, look bad in other ways, be point to the truth in some ways, point way away from the truth in other ways, it's fundamentally wrong. There's something at the heart of the way they live that's misguided, that's false. Paul says, don't live like everyone else. Don't live like you used to live. This morning we learn why they're wrong and how God calls us to live. This is a very straightforward passage, so much so I struggled a little bit with organizing the sermon, and I've decided to do it a little bit uniquely. I've organized it around three words. Three words that help us think about the change that happens when we go from being not a Christian to a Christian. Three words that help us think about the old self and the new self. They'll help us explore this relationship between the old self and the new self. The three words around which this sermon will be built are first, futility. Futility. Second, renewal. And third, replacement. Futility, renewal, and replacement. The title of this sermon is supposed to be a play on the old man in the sea, the classic Faulkner book, The Old Man and the New Me. You gotta say new me close so it sounds like sea. Right? The Old Man and the New Me will be in Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 through 32. I'm just gonna go ahead and read that whole uh, passage and then we'll jump using those words into the big themes of it. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our first word is futility. The way of the world is futile. Your old life, no matter what it was like, it was futile. How can you say that non-believers are walking in futility? Well, a couple clarifications. First, not because they are all bad people by worldly standards. And certainly not because they are all dumb people by any stretch. They're walking in futility because there is a fundamental problem deep in their heart and in their mind. We saw in verses 17 and 19, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Due to their hardness of heart. What was your fundamental problem? What was my fundamental problem before I believed the gospel? That I simply did bad things. That I simply believed uh, untrue facts. Uh, Not fundamentally, though those were problems. Doing bad things, believing false things, these things are, they're symptoms. They're not fundamental problems. You did not live rightly, like you didn't think rightly, because you did not love rightly. You didn't love rightly because of your relationship to God. You you lived as a creature. I lived as a creature cut off from its creator. Before Christ, we walked not in obedient worship of our creator, but in rebellious ignorance of him. Before Christ, we worship the creation. Now, very few people would use that language of, oh, I worship the creation. But you lived, we lived for created stuff. 
myself, my family, my career, my pleasure, my advancement, my status, my comfort, my pleasure, fill in the blank. Misdirected worship, worship that doesn't go to the creator, but goes to created stuff, and misguided love, hearts set not on the glory of God, but on ourselves and the world. Misguided worship and misguided love equal idolatry. <laughs> misdirected worship plus misguided love equals idolatry. Idolatry leads to immorality. Idolatry leads to immorality. This is what Paul is saying, that calloused hearts and darkened minds lead to unholy living. That leads to immoral living. It leads to futility. Now that immorality expresses itself in 10,000 ways. In the Greco-Roman culture of Ephesus, much like in our own day, it expresses itself in sensuality and quote, every kind of impurity as Paul here mentions. Paul makes a point to mention sexual sins specifically. Socially accepted sexual sins is nothing new, whether it's sexual relationships outside the covenant of marriage, the use of pornography, issues relating to sexual abuse, uh, sexual abuse of lower class people, very, very popular in the Greco-Roman world, homosexual activity, any sort of promiscuity. Like Cultures all have some sort of code for their sexual conduct. And this is the code, and it's acceptable here as long as you kind of follow this code. But that code is not the Bible. It's not the scriptures. And so... Paul is helping his hearers see, helping all of us see, that the immoral living around you that's very visible is flowing from an invisible reality of your mind and your heart. Misdirected worship and misguided love leads to immoral living. And the way of the world, even when it seems successful, even when it seems pleasurable, even when it seems liberating, even when it seems meaningful, it, 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 it's not, Paul says. It's fundamentally futile. It is ultimately hopeless. It is ultimately, in the grand scheme of all things, pointless. And it was not through the wisdom of the world that you came to know Christ. Christian, you walk now not in the futility of your mind, our second word enters the stage, but in the renewal of your mind. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through what? Deceitful desires, heart problem, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You have heard about Christ, you have been taught in Christ, and you've believed Christ, like you've learned Christ himself. Paul reminds the church, you've been taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Where there was once futility, there is now renewal. 
You were alienated from God and your mind was futile. Now you are in Christ. You are with God and your mind is being renewed. The fundamental shift from who you were to who you are is not just behavior modification. It's not just being nicer. It's not just uh, believing even just certain things, but the fundamental shift is your relationship towards God, that you were apart from God and there was no life in you, but now you are in Christ and the life of God flows to you and through you. The fundamental shift that happened, taking you from who you were to who you are, is the shift in how you relate to God. When you do not walk by faith in God, your heart is hard and your mind is darkened and your conduct is not pleasing to God. That conduct manifests itself in all sorts of impurity, we'll just say, as Paul says. But when you do walk by faith in God, your heart is alive, your mind is being renewed, and you begin to walk in a manner that pleases God. Now, I think there are two fundamental movements in the Christian life. Perhaps we see them in this text. There's a taking off the old self and a putting on the new self. There's a repenting and a believing. Now, we must not focus on taking off the old self and ignore putting on the new self. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. You've heard this. You've maybe even been turned off by this at some point in your life. Have you ever heard Christianity sort of uh, presented just as a list of things you can't do? Here's a list of things you guys stop doing right now. Stop cussing, stop lying, stop cheating, stop stealing, stop getting drunk, stop picking fights, stop wanting stuff that's not yours, stop cheating on your wife. You get the picture. Now, those are almost all things you should stop doing, to be abundantly clear. But is simply not doing things the full extent of the Christian life? Is simply getting rid of bad habits, getting rid of things that don't, like it's simply getting rid of these things. Is that the point? Well, it's part of it, sure. We should be marked by things that we don't do. Christians abstain from certain things and that's good. But there's a positive formulation that we can't neglect. Not only do we not do certain things, but we begin to do certain things. We replace the old things with, with new things. We can't neglect that second movement. Just as there are old clothes we take off, there better be new clothes we put on or we walk around spiritually naked. Like We've got to take off the old and put on the new. Replace those old clothes which are designed by the world with some kingdom clothes that are designed by God. Replace those old rags with some righteousness. Put on the new self which is created not after the likeness of the world but after the likeness of God. That leads to our third and final word replacement. Now let's get very practical, Paul essentially says. Let's not just tell you something, let's just show you something. What exactly does it look like then to take off the old clothes uh, and put on the new clothes? What does it look like to take off the rags of unrighteousness and put on the robes of righteousness? 
To walk with purpose, not pointlessness. To walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. I'm glad you asked. Paul gives us a series of examples listed as a sort of binary. You did X, now do Y. The first one is in verse 25. Don't lie. Tell the truth. The old you lied a little bit if you needed to. Like if it helped you at work, if, you got, if it got you out of an awkward conversation, uh, you just throw out a little lie and you're, you're good to go. No, no, you used to lie. Replace lying with truth telling. See, Christians aren't just people who don't lie. Christians are people who cherish and pursue the truth because the truth is in Christ. Here's a really good one in verse 26. It's a little bit less cut and dry. Replace your old way of getting angry with a new way of getting angry. <laughs> Replace your old way of getting angry with your new way of getting angry. Now, you used to get angry when bad things happened to you. You used to let that anger just dwell inside of you, would turn into bitterness. And you used to let that anger and bitterness then burn you up from the inside out. Have any of you experienced that? An anger that takes root deep in your heart and manifests itself and turns into just bitterness and, and eats you up from the inside out. You were so consumed with anger that your joy was quenched. Here's a better way to be angry, Paul says. Here's a Christian way to be angry. Be angry about the things that anger God. Be angry, sure, but do not sin. Be angry about what angers God. Be angry about the right things and in the right way. In other words, do not let that anger push you to seek vengeance. Do not let it cause you to hate someone else. And do not give the devil an opportunity to use that anger to shipwreck your, shipwreck your own life. Don't get angry the way you used to get angry. Replace it with a better way to get angry. A way that doesn't sin in a way that's directed not at ourselves, but just brings that in prayer to God. Here's a third replacement. Replace stealing with productive work and generosity. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Replace stealing with productive work and generosity. Yes, don't steal. That's great. Really good part of your Christian witness to not be a thief. But that's not the totality of your Christian witness. Don't just not steal. But do honest work with your own hands. Why? So that you can share with other people. In other words... You can not steal and still be a thief because of all that you withhold from others. St. Basil the Great was a bishop in Caesarea in the mid uh, modern day Turkey in the 300s. I think he died uh, mid 300s in there somewhere. I wrote a paper on him for my early church seminar and I studied specifically his response to uh, famine and plague in his area and how he responded specifically with the gospel to counseling people through that. In a sermon on Luke 12, 
Speaking about the rich who are hoarding away from the poor who are in need, Basil the Great says, but whom do I treat unjustly, you say, by just keeping what's my own? Tell me what is your own. What did you bring into this life? From where did you receive it? It is as if someone were to take the first seat in the theater and bar everyone else from attending so that one person alone enjoys what is offered for the benefit of all in common. This is what you rich do, he writes to his hearers. They seize common goods before others have an opportunity and then claim as their own by right of preemption. For if we all took what was necessary to satisfy our own needs, giving the rest to those who lack, no one would be rich, no one would be poor, and no one would be in need. Basil the Great reminds us that we bring nothing into this world, that we should be productive with our work, we should share with others that their needs may be met. Christians replace stealing with giving. How about another? Let's look at a fourth one. Replace negative talk with constructive talk. Replace negative speech with constructive speech. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, and that it may give grace to those who hear. Three things. Let your speech be for building up, let it be appropriate, let it fit the occasion, and let it give grace to those who hear. If you stop saying ugly things to people and about people, that's a good start to the Christian life. But that's just taking off the old clothes. Now you got some new clothes to put on. Don't just not say ugly things. Choose to say beautiful things. Say helpful things. Say appropriate things. Speak with purpose of building up. A simple question. When is the last time you used your words to encourage someone. I think so many times we walk around discouraged and God has given us one another to encourage each other. Um, an awkward conversation aimed at encouragement will do more good for someone in your life than you think that it will. It's great to not tear others down by the things you say. It's great to hold your tongue if you don't have anything good to say, as mom told me growing up over and over, don't say anything. But it's also really great to replace that ugly talk with helpful talk. Let's look at one final replacement. One final example of what it looks like to take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. Replace bitterness and wrath with kindness and forgiveness. Replace bitterness and wrath with kindness and forgiveness. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There are some really loud and visible things we gotta put away and some really quiet and invisible things we gotta put away, both relating to the community here. Clamor and slander are loud. Gossip is loud. These are evident markers of unhealthy community. This looks like 
verbal conflict. It's ugly meetings. It's shouting matches even. It's gossip. These are evident markers of sin in the community. But there are also invisible things we've got to stop doing, Paul says. Invisible things, quiet things, bitterness and wrath and malice. These are less evident. The bitter person keeps it to themselves. The bitter person dodges people in the hallways. They don't yell at them. <laughs> they just disdain them in their heart, not with their mouth. Clamor, slander, or malice and bitterness. Put it all away. Put it all away. Paul says, this is how you used to walk. You don't walk like that anymore. Now, walk a better way. Be tenderhearted. Believe the best in your brothers and sisters. Even those, brother. Gotta believe the best in them. <laughs> Tommy and I talk a lot about all these sorts of things, don't we, buddy? Yeah, we do. We put all of it away. We... We walk not how we used to or what seems natural, but we must walk as Christ calls us. Replace these things with kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Why, as we bring this to a close? Because God in Christ forgave you. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? There it is. Right? This is how God has dealt with us. So this is how we deal with others, and it points to the gospel. That God in Christ has forgiven you, therefore, forgive others. Be tenderhearted with others. Be kind to others. Be patient with others. Be loving with others. Not because they're good, not because they deserve it, not because they won't be backbiters, Tommy, but because of Christ. Because Christ loves you. Because Christ has forgiven you. Because our lives point to his now, worship team, you can come on up. We kind of skipped over one important sentence here uh, because it didn't really fit in the way I drew up the sermon, but it's so important. We can't just let it sit. It could be its own sermon, so I'll just reflect briefly in the conclusion on it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's just kind of tacked on there in this midst of examples. Okay, replace Lying with truth-telling. Replace uh, bitterness, anger with, with kindness and, and forgiveness. Uh, replace stealing with, with giving and with generosity. And then in the middle of these commands, it's just this, this sentence. And, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. Now, what exactly does that mean? I, I, I want to say one thing about what it definitely means. It reminds us that what we have in our text here is no list of dry rules. This is no boring and bland legal code. 
This is not an aloof God who just has an arbitrary way that the world should be and he puts it in a book and then he gives us the book and he says, live this way or else I'll zap you. No, no, no. We don't have a God like that. We have a holy and righteous God who is personal, who knows us, who loves us, and who dwells with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have a creator who wants to be with his created. Even though we have, as we've seen in Ephesians, run away from God, God runs towards us. This is the pursuing love of God. That the son has come to die in our place, to take the penalty that we deserved on himself to die our death, to rise victoriously and give us life, to ascend to heaven, to send God the Spirit to dwell with us and in us. And here's the key point. The Christian life is the life of Christ lived through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. How can you go from one who doesn't just not steal but gives. How can you go for one who doesn't just not get bitter, but gets righteously angry and trusts God to resolve all things? How do you go from one who is bitter and don't want to forgive the people in your family, in your church, in your life? They go for one who is forgiving and tenderhearted. How do you go from that? It's not through willpower. It's through the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who dwells on. And that's why Paul just slides in there. Don't grieve the Spirit because the Spirit is with you. And when you walk in the old ways, you grieve the Spirit. And what do you miss out on? You miss out on fellowship with God. These commands are not just so that you can look like a Christian to other people. But these commands are so that you may know the intimate fellowship of God in the dark night of your soul. These commands foster a relationship with God that is real and vibrant and tangible so that you can sense his nearness. You can sense his presence. You can sense his love. And you know that no matter what happens to you, the Lord God is with you and he has sealed you into the day of redemption. Walk in a way that pleases God and walk in this way because it's empowered by God. These are no mere rules that we should keep just to be good. This is the word of God that reveals to us the heart of God. This God who dwells in our hearts by his spirit when we believe the gospel. So friends, let us take off those old clothes like everyone else wears. And let's put on some new clothes. Some robes of righteousness designed by God himself that we may shine as a contrast community in the world around us and that our hearts may shine with the knowledge of the glory and presence of the almighty God in us. Let's pray together.
Father, remind us now that repentance is good. That walking in renewal is better than walking in futility. Give us faith to walk in the renewal of our minds. Give us faith not to fall back into our old and comfortable and easy ways of being. Give us grace to keep going when it's hard. Give us faith to believe that we can sense your presence and nearness in profound ways as we walk in your will. Father, many of us have grieved the spirit in the way we're walking. We don't sense your nearness. We don't feel your companionship with us because we have continued to walk our own way. Father, we've broken your law, but more importantly, your word reminds us that our sin is breaks your heart. Help us, Lord, to replace the old with the new. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we trust, God, that you will, that you hear us when we pray and that you're able to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine.